Good morning, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Oh, what a wonderful morning. We have Dr. Warren Farrell on the line who has, um, I won't even tell you what hour it is in his locale, but I can only assume that his hands are still dripping with the cow's milk because he must be getting that up that early <laughs> to milk the cows in order to be ready for a show like this. Thank you so much, Warren. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> oh, good. So we're actually in the shed. So Here we're going to get a play-by-play. Play. You know, if you have a calf giving birth, I think that would be excellent drama. This show doesn't have at all a live births in it, and I think that uh, they seem to be quite popular with people, so we'll hopefully work that in somehow. So we did a chat uh, recently, and one of the things that came out, we, we're going to take some listener callers in a sec, but um, one of the things that came out that I thought was a really great comment was, um, and it certainly was accurate in its description of me, I'm not sure about you, but as somebody wrote and said, uh, uh, y- y- y'all seem to be, I don't know if there was a y'all in there, but I just thought I'd throw it in, y'all seem to be tiptoeing around the question of, uh, of female violence. And uh, I think there is a sense of that, you know, because we get so much, uh, we, we hear so much about how uh, women are victims of, of various things, and the idea that women can perpetrate violence is... Um, sensational. I mean, it's lurid, and occasionally you'll hear some of the, you know, moms who kill their children kind of thing, which is the kind of extreme that excludes or occludes the the mean. And um, so I was wondering if you thought a little bit about that. The, the, the statistic that came up was, you know, the more women than men engage in child abuse. And one that came up as well was circumcision, that uh, women seem to be, or some women are pro-circumcision. Uh, not that the men are uninvolved in that decision, but that's another kind of aggression that is important. Uh, did you think it's true that we have a tough time uh, talking about female aggression uh, or female capacities for abuse in our society? Yes. And you know, the, the deeper reason is that that we do consider men to be disposable, disposable in war and work. And so we have an easier time sort of not protecting men because the very protection, the very protection of men leaves us unprotected. Um, and, and then the purpose of our willingness to be disposable, whether it's in war and work, is to protect women. And, um, and so, and to protect the society, and to protect the society for children to be doing, our children to be doing better than, than we do. So the very, and the way that we, um, the heterosexuals among us, the way that we get women um, is by being the, uh, is being the, the knight on shining armor, the one, the one that is willing to, um, you know, kill the enemy or make a killing in Wall Street. And so there's an enormous amount of desire for us guys to, um, when a woman complains, to compete among each other as to who will be the savior, um, and to think of the person that and the and the and women play into that by being um, a bit on the fragile, or, you know, pretending to be fragile even when they're not. And so the and so men's weakness is often our facade of strength, and women's strength is often their facade of weakness. So you have that underlying dynamic going on. Now on top of that, so so and and that's the only thing that explains what I'm going to be sharing next, which is really quite astonishing. And, you know, when I first did the research uh, for the myth of male power, I discovered that, you know, men and women 
in everyday domestic violence situations, um, women and men hit each other about equally. And that that was, you know, and that the studies, the first studies that came out on that were by people by Strauss, were by people like Strauss and Gellis, Murray Strauss and Richard Gellis. Um, and they uh, interviewed men and women all around the United States. And they, and they asked them about six different levels of violence from um, being hit to being, um, to, uh, to being sl- uh, slapped and punched to um, having uh, to being hit with something, an object like a pot or a pan, um, to being um, actually shot um, to being and uh, obviously then they looked at the data on being killed. The data on being killed is very complex. I'll explain that a bit more in a moment. Um, but it's uh, we usually think of of women as being killed by men more than men being killed by women. But I'll explain why no one really knows whether that's true or not, and that why that probably is not true. But that's a, as I said a more complex answer. So I, when I first put that out in the myth of male power, people went, "You must be crazy," you know that type of thing. So I realized when by the time I did the research for Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, that I wanted to do a whole chapter on exactly that. And then as I ran the chapter by initial readers, um, the reaction was sort of, you know, backs got tense and uh, that type of thing. So I realized that that what I, when I said that, I had to take the 50 largest studies that had been done. Fortunately, at least half of them were done by women, and most of the women were feminists, and most of the feminists were good enough to tell the truth um, about that when they had done academic studies. And the truth was, um, and and I had to put a whole appendix in the back of the book documenting and annotating each of the studies and explaining what they were about, what the methodology was, and what the findings were in order to have any credibility. And I persuaded my publisher, who wasn't you know very much inclined toward um, you know, appendixes filled with studies. I said, you know, I'll be the, I'll be seen as being crazy or misogynist, you know, if I publish these without the, you know, without an de- in-depth explanation. And so I did that. And um, here are the basic findings. Uh, first of all, if you have a son or a daughter, um, uh, girls are more likely to hit boys um, than boys are to hit girls when they're dating. Um, and so that process starts very early in the in in the male female life. Um, so uh, you know, girls will hit a boy with or slap a boy across the face, and you see this on on TV all the time, or in the movies, and go to almost any um, any um, adolescent type of movie that appeals to young men and women. You'll see the the girl hitting slapping the boy across the face for saying the wrong thing, uh, whereas if the boy had slapped the girl um, across the face, we'd have a much more tense reaction to that. Um, so then, it, then once you get into living together in married situations, um, a woman is far more, um, uh, when women themselves were asked in domestic violence situation uh, situations, who was the first person to hit, uh, to do the first hit? Women acknowledge that they are the first person to do the hit, to do the first hit um, a little bit more than 50% of the time. Men say it's more like asking men the same question. They say it's more like 70, 75% of the time. But most domestic violence situations are more complex than that. They require they involve both male and female hitting each other. Um, but when the male calls the police and report, you know, the male first of all, if he if if he's hit by a, a woman. Is 
is far less likely to call the police. And, you know, very few of the men being interviewed did uh, call the p- police. And so that so you have that aspect of things um, uh, happening as well. Um, so the, so that's a little bit of and, and then the escalation of violence um, goes all the, uh, is about equal on the part of both sexes, a little bit more female initiated um, and uh, male response. Um, however, men do tend to hurt women more, injure women more. At least that's what the data says. But what we're not sure about about that data is when a man is hit by a woman, he's much less likely to call the emergency room than when a woman is hit by a man. So we don't know whether that's a factor, uh, you know, that's a result of the male being fearful of calling the emergency room. We also don't know whether the reporting to police is the whether result of the males being uh, more fearful of calling the police or just, you know, it's not less manly a thing to do to call the police and say, my wife hit me, my girlfriend hit me. Um, You know, the police sort of look at you like you're crazy unless unless the abuse is very severe. Now, on on the last level, the killing level. We obviously can't interview people who are killed, so we don't have great data on that. Uh, so we have to deal with the the data that comes from um, you know from what's reported when um, when somebody is killed, and it is reported that uh, women are fifty uh, percent more likely to be killed by the men than the men are to be killed by the women. So that seems like a pretty clear statistic. However, it isn't clear at all, uh, and the reason for that is that men and women kill differently for different reasons and different motivations and different styles. Uh, when a woman kills a man, it's almost always a man that has a, a, a will and that has a reasonable amount, uh, usually a, a decent amount of money. And if she's a, a middle or upper middle class uh, or wealthy woman, she hires somebody to do the killing. If she's uh, economically poor, she usually gets involved with a boyfriend and does the killing. Um, either way, it's a multiple offender killing. That is, it's the female with a male plotting to kill the, the male. So when a woman and man kill each other, the man almost always does it spontaneously, like in anger, kills the woman um, with a knife or a gun, and the evidence is very clearly there that he killed her, and then he turns around and usually kills himself. When the woman kills the man, her desires are usually to get free from the man and be able to live a happy life free from him. In order to do that, she usually cares about getting um, money to be free of so she can live her life effectively after that. And so she wants to kill him in such a way that does not appear like a homicide or it doesn't even appear like a suicide. So the insurance company will release the, the monies. Uh, so she will, uh, so if she's wealthier, uh, she will hire somebody. So it will be usually a male and her killing the husband or the boyfriend but usually the husband at the in the wealthier levels, and in the among poorer people, it can be boyfriend or husband, and um, and it will be usually the the woman will be involved with a new boyfriend and say that she's trapped by the old boyfriend and that he hits her, and that usually and that and she and he will and he'll be a. a, a um, infuriated that he that he hits her and so that he will conspire with her to to kill him but in order to get the insurance money it has to be a uh, it has to be seem like an accident so they'll stage an accident in some way so the ideal of when it, that killing is successful that it's never discovered that it's been a killing so therefore it doesn't get reco- recorded as a woman killing a man but if it is and this is the crucial and amazing thing if it if she is discovered 
um, as, as as she and he has plotted a killing, whether it's a it, whether it's the boyfriend or whether it's a hired killing, the FBI records the statistic in the United States at least as a multiple offender killing. So therefore, when you look up the data and the killing of the other gender, when you look up the data on men killing women or women killing men all of the multiple offender or all of the contract killings um, do not get um, do not get counted. And when you look at the number of contract killings versus the number of killings in general, there are far more contract killings than there are male-female killings. But we don't know. But some of those contract killings are not male-female killings. There are other uh, contract killings, and they're not. And then and the multiple offender killings are not broken down based on domestic violence. So in brief, the best answer that we can get is that women and men probably kill each other about equally. Probably maybe women killing each other, killing men. About Bit more than men killing women if you look at the data really uh, objectively but you really don't know the answer to that question so the brief answer is that men and women kill and hurt and do domestic violence to each other at every level of, of violence so I, I hope your questioner feels that that's an adequate answer well i think also we used to have at least in art i mean i come from sort of a, a theater art background there used to be more consciousness, I think, of the capacity for female evil in society. I'm just sort of thinking back about my Greek and Roman myths. I mean, I don't remember the female gods being particularly peaceful. In fact, they were quite, quite aggressive. Uh, Medea ate her own children. Go fast forwarding to the uh, 16th century, we have Lady Macbeth uh, and the Taming of the Shrew, and the capacity for e female evil seemed to be explicated in culture. Uh, but that seems to have to some degree at least been shunted aside and i think that's uh, i think that's a shame because it's it's an important thing to remember in society yes first of all i totally agree with you and and you know what we what we really have to understand is that there are, you know men and women are in many ways uh, remarkably alike we're very different in the way we carry out things but we both want approval love affection um, and to be to be cared for and we both when we're when we feel like we're not getting and we want, both want to survive and when survival is threatened by either you know for either of us we we um we behave in ways that lead to survival not lead not uh, and protect ourselves and we can act out and kill and hurt other people and so the um and so we both have it in s and the way that manifests is that we both can be really evil and we both can be really wonderful we both all of us want to do wonderful things for people, but when we are threatened, we almost all uh, do pretty terrible things. But your your basic instinct about um, you know the, the literature and the art of the past being different than the art of today is right on target. And here's here's an example of this. Um, if you watch older movies, 1950s movies or movies from the uh, the very early era, you will see um, uh, you will see times when women are violent toward men, um, and you will um, and you'll see women even dying in the movie. However, if you take the following type of movie, Hollywood produced movies, uh, U.S. Um, based or Western world based, but especially U.S. based, uh, where a female who is 
considered feminine. That is, she's not threatening other women. She's not directly portrayed immediately as a, as a person who is um, undermining um, the the future of other women or or is playing an evil role. And that's the the number playing an evil role are very very small. But um, but when you when you look at the, those women, and it's a fiction movie, not a nonfiction movie based on reality, but a fiction movie. Then you will uh, then, and that woman appears for more than three scenes in a movie. She will not. And this is spoiler alert here. She will not, no matter how much she's in jeopardy, no matter how much she is threatened during the movie, no matter how much the entire movie is focused on her being in jeopardy, she will not be killed or very seriously injured during the course of the movie. She may be injured at a light level, like having a little bit of blood come out, but not at a very serious level um, during the entire course of the movie. And you know, given how many Hollywood movies have been produced uh, since the politically correct era of the late 60s, and on, uh, we're talking now about almost 50 years of movie production, um, in which there has have there's been almost no exception to that rule um, in Hollywood um, in Hollywood movies. Okay, so um, yeah, so Dr. Farrell, I had a, a question. Uh, somebody, um, uh, I've had a, a woman on the show. Her, she, her sort of nomenclature is "Girl Writes What" on YouTube. She's got some very excellent gender-related videos. And she put forward a political argument that I thought was very interesting. I wonder if I get your comments, where she said that um, single moms tend to vote uh, to the left and married moms, uh, married women tend to vote to the right. And she said that, I mean, it's, it's always tough to reduce these things to one variable, but she said one variable that's kind of underreported is that single moms are voting left to keep social programs going, to give them resources to raise their children. Whereas married women are voting right in order to try and get the economic opportunities or the free market, the general Republican small government free market ideology so that their husbands can have more resources to bring home to the kids, which I thought was a, a quite an interesting argument. Do you think that this new constellation of families uh, where, you know, the, the sort of dual married families is definitely in the minority these days, it, that it's having an effect on voting patterns and the political process? Yes. First of all, the, the the program that she does is, and her her uh, website is very good. I really enjoy it. She's one of the most um, perceptive women on these issues uh, in in the world, and so I definitely encourage um, listeners um, to to tune into that. Uh, secondly, the uh, she's basically correct with a with a refinement that increases her correctness. Actually, uh, the and the refi refinement is that the. Um, that that so basically yes women who are poorer um, economically um, and single uh, sing, uh, single women uh, they do tend to vote more to toward the left now there's there's a couple of refinements on that which is that for example never married women who have never had children uh, they actually earn more than never married men who have never had children and so there is um, there's a tenant so th those women. Um, who are in that never never married, who have never had children, as opposed to the the majority, many many women who have um, not been married have had children, and so when women have had children, and they've not and they're not married, then they tend to vote more to the left. When they ha are never married and never had children, those are really an interesting group of women to look at. I haven't seen data 
on whether or not the woman who has never been married and never have children had had children who again earns more than the never married never had children male counterpart by 17% and has earned more than the never married male counterpart since the 1970s by the way uh, and this is um, and the most recent data about the 17% difference between never married women who have never had children and never married men who have never had children that 17% gap um, is true even when you control for education, when you control for a number of years in the workplace, when you control for numbers of hours worked. And all the data on that is in a book I wrote called um, uh, Why Men Earn More, uh, The Startling Truth Behind the Pay Gap. So if you want more depth on that, that's that's about that issue. And the, and the voting patterns of those different groups are in there as well. Now, the, the top part of that is also fascinating, which is that, you know, that when women are married um, and they're poorer, then their husbands tend to vote Democratic and the wife tends to vote Democratic. Um, and when they're wealthier, then the husbands tend to vote, uh, they're more likely to vote Republican and the Democrats are more likely to vote Republican, I'm sorry, the um, and the um, women are more likely to vote Republican unless they're in certain ethnic groups like Jewish people who are uh, wealthier tend to vote um, to a higher degree um, more Democrat, um, even though they are, um, you know, they'll have to probably on the average um, pay higher taxes um, if they if they do that. And so and I and there's so many ironies in all that, too, that, you know, when Democrats are in office, um, we usually think of, you know, the the best reflection of the um uh, of economics and business uh, success uh, probably being uh, reported in any one given statistic in how well the stock market does. Uh, and when Democrats are in office in the, in the United States and as president, uh, the stock market does uh, considerably better on average than it does when Republicans are in office. And we sort of saw that most recently, you know, when uh, in March of 2009, um, there was uh, the stock market in the United States was at six hundred and uh, six thousand five hundred, and today it's at four fourteen thousand, um, you know, a little bit over fourteen thousand. And so um, there's more than a doubling of the stock market since um, Obama uh, took office, or at least two months after Obama took office, um, to today uh, than there was um, uh, during the end of the Bush administration, at least. So, yeah, once you peel back the rhetoric from the political parties and you look at the actual data of what occurs, uh, the rhetoric really does dissolve uh, like a morning mist. Uh, the, so this, I mean, Republicans are supposed to be about small government, but social program spending rises faster under a Republican administration than it does under a Democrat, as you point out. I mean, perhaps because the Democrats um, uh, tend to influence um, the printing of more money, which drives a lot of stock market activity. But, yeah, it is. Uh, if you actually look at the data, the rhetoric seems to be uh, rather obtuse. Uh, so, James, did we have one more uh, one more caller before um, uh, I continue to pepper the, the fine doctor with questions? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Ryan, you're up today. All right. Hi, guys. So I had a question for the both of you. Um, my question is, what advice do you both have for me as a kind, empathetic young man in my mid-20s trying to navigate the modern dating scene? I'd like to find a similarly kind and empathetic wife as soon as possible, but I'd also rather not remain celibate while I'm searching. All of the casual sex that is supposedly available nowadays doesn't seem fairly distributed, nor can I get much of it myself. My experience is that either 
I find women who fall significantly short in terms of personality, or I find that my focus on connection prevents or kills sexual interest in the woman. Yes. Yeah. Very good, Ryan. That's an excellent question. And a, it. it uh, well, first of all, Stefan, do you want do you want to start with that? Your thoughts? No. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, it's an excellent question, and it's exactly what most males who are kind and empathetic and loving and um, are experiencing as well. So, all right, first of all, we have to realize that women are still attracted to men who are good performers. Women are still attracted to men who are um, uh, who take initiatives. Women are still attracted to men who take risks. So the 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 the, the challenge of any young man is to both be, but yet women also like men who are kind and empathetic. They just don't want men who are reading books like Why Men Are the Way They Are or any self-improvement book in an unemployment line. They want, you have to be in the employment line first. You have to be the risk taker first. You have to be um, performer first. And then once you're a performer, the qualities of which are inversely related to empathy and and um, and 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 sensitivity and good listening skills, um, though then then you are desired to have good listening skills, empathy, and other, and other things. So, now let me just spend a moment on what the tension there is about. So, when you become successful. Um, the the qualities it takes to become successful. Let's say you're you become successful as an attorney, and let's say uh, that Ryan, you and I are two attorneys, and we're arguing against each other. And let's say that Stefan is my uh, let's say Stefan is the other attorney, and you're my client, okay? And Stefan and I, let's say we're getting into an argument against each other. So my job, if I'm going to represent you as my client really well, is to spend a few seconds listening to Stefan, form in my uh, try to find the flaw in his argument if there is any. If there is no flaw to distort something he said so there appears to be a flaw and then once I've found either a distort uh, a potential distortion that I can argue is a flaw or or not I then begin to listen in my own mind's eye to an argument I can make to defeat Stefan and if I do that very well I've served you Ryan my client very well but if I were to to be empathetic and sort of sympathetic and really um, a good listener I would say oh wow Stefan that's really an important point that I had thought of before. Can you elaborate on that? And gee, you know, I don't, I don't think Ryan and I have ever thought about that before. Isn't that insightful of, of Stefan Ryan? And in the meantime, you'd be furious as my client because I'd be representing, I'd be helping Stefan articulate his perspectives better. And I'm supposed to be representing your perspectives, not him. So I take that same behavior home to work, uh, that ability to um, to cross-examine and, and interrupt and self-listening to, to Stefan. And I listened and my and my wife is saying, gee, I've had a tough day at work and I'm interrupting her, uh, listening to myself, create a solution to her, uh, listening to myself, find a flaw in what she is saying, um, interrupting her at the f- first chance of doing that, distorting what she's saying. And I'm a terrible husband. I do the same thing to my children. I'm a terrible father. And so the qualities it takes to succeed at work are inversely related in many respects to the qualities it takes to succeed at home. However, women fall in love with us 
based on our success or our potential. And then once we have that success and potential, they want us to be empathetic, warm, tender, open, loving, um, and facilitative. And so many women do fall in love initially with wealthy men or successful men. And eventually they feel that that is not important to them because they and they break up with them um, because they're not empathetic and warm enough. They're too arrogant. They're too self-centered and so on. But the, uh, but the And so they're, they convince themselves that it's not important for them as to how much money uh, or success or potential the man has, but then they go ahead and fall in love with another successful man and require the, and gets very frustrated because both sexes fall in love with the members of the other sex who are the least capable of loving them. And then they blame the the, the, the other sex for characteristics that they have um, that are that are inversely related to love. So we do the same type of thing. We fall in love with women who are younger, women who are more beautiful as a rule, women who are older or more mature and capable of loving us effectively than women who are younger. Um, the more beautiful the woman is, the more she's like a genetic celebrity and all men compete to make her happy and she becomes more spoiled and self-centered, but we still continue falling in love with the more beautiful women. And so, um, so the, the, the key solution is um, that it's really important for you to know that uh, that being confident. So you know, come um, t- taking what you what you were the question you were asking, writing it down, and then saying to yourself, you know, I'm going to ask it from my heart. I'm going to ask it without reading it. I'm going to ask it as if I'm confident. Um, that's going to be you know that that type of thing um, makes a woman sort of more turned on um, than than um, asking it uh, than asking it very timidly. You I mean you asked it very well, but I'm just giving you an example of the type of um, of, of things that, that turn women on. So we get the, both sexes get turned on based on qualities that were useful for survival thousands and hundreds of years ago, um, but qualities that are really um, much more um, dubious in terms of their ability to have a long-term loving relationship um, uh, today. So that's um, um, the, 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 uh, the reality, the best I can give it to you <laughs> relatively briefly. I would add I a would few add- um, a few other things as well, and this is all with the caveat that you know if you engage in a, a sort of strict pursuit of self knowledge, almost anything is possible. But in the absence of you know a, a dedication to self knowledge and, and perhaps therapy and so on, in the absence of that, what I have found helpful is to look at uh, and to ask questions of a woman's constellation of genetic and and uh, in particular gender value. And that's, I mean, that sounds ridiculously abstract, but it really is quite helpful. One of the things that, I mean, I've now been very happily married for uh, over 10 years. And I mean, I come from a, a single parent environment, single mom environment. So I didn't really have a template. Now I did the therapy. So of course that, uh, I think was, was, was key in changing that, that, uh, pattern, but you can ask, ask the woman. Now, if she, you know, if she comes from a household where the man's value was not clear, and, and there's a lot of propaganda about how men are not valuable. And you've probably heard this statistic that, I guess, women work 16 or 18 hours more a week at home. What's not mentioned is that men work over 20 hours a week more outside the home. Um, so the question is, for the woman, what is her constellation of gender values? You know, if she grew up with a single mom with a series of trashy men passing through her living room, uh, you know, who never lifted a finger and, and so on, uh, then she's going to have a sense of a lack of male value. And that's that's going to be a challenge, you know, and she's going to need to confront that and, and deal with that and so on. 
if she comes from a household, uh, you know, my wife came from a household where you know, things were fairly egalitarian. The mom and the dad worked and uh, uh, there was no sense of, you know, one person sitting on the couch while the other person Cinderella style scrubbed the floor or whatever. And so she had a strong sense of masculine value to the family. And so uh, I would really suggest uh, trying to figure out where people are coming from. You know, in the absence of significant self-intervention, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And the best predictor of future relationships is an examination of past relationships. So I think that's, um, uh, I think that's, that's important. Uh, because there are a lot of women, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I, I hate to use the word feminism because feminism is one of these words that you can parse out almost any way that you want. But sort of the more extreme kind, kinds of, marriage is slavery and the patriarchy rules all, this sort of stereotypical extreme fe uh, feminism, there are a lot of women who don't like that and, and who specifically reject that concept. And I think having conversations about the value of gender, you know, you can ask a woman who's dating, you know, what value do you think a man is going to bring to your life? What value do you think a man is going to bring to your home? What value do you think a man is going to bring as a, a you know, husband, a father, a friend, and so on, you know, and what what specifically does a man have of value to offer that you can't necessarily get from a woman? I mean, other than the obvious uh, pointy bits. Uh, so I think, and now the longer the pause the woman has, the less perhaps, you know, you want to make your decisions on a split second. But if you say, well, what value can a man bring to your relationship? If there's this long pause, then <laughs> that may, may be a gap which you can flush a few years down if you're not careful. So um, I think that's that's important. I mean, obviously, if if the stereotypical extreme feminism were true and, you know, if you put women in charge, everything will be great, then, of course, of course, the kids of single moms would be doing fantastically when, of course, the complete opposite is true. I think, as some writers have mentioned, there's no better single predictor for uh, failure and problems and dysfunction in life than being uh, from uh, a single parent, usually a single mother household. So, so you know, just having women around is not great. I mean, I grew up in a series of apartment buildings in a series of countries. It was all pretty much the same. I called them the matriarchal manners because uh, it was all, it was in the 70s when divorce rates were skyrocketing and it was all women who'd left their husbands and uh, basically taken up with uh, various social programs and um, had, of course, a public school to park their kids during the day. And they worked and they weren't lazy or anything like that. But, uh, I mean, some of them. But it was a very, very dysfunctional environment. And it was a largely man-less environment. And uh, that uh, that doesn't work very well. And if women are not aware of that, that if the men aren't around, the family structure and the children in particular suffer enormously, enormously, then you're going to have a tough time convincing women of the value if they've only heard propaganda to the contrary and haven't looked at the actual facts uh, then I think it's going to be tough. And I don't think you want to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't value your gender uh, because I, or, you know, has, has listened to the propaganda about how disposable men are, which is very much counter to the evidence. So I, I'm sorry, that's a really abstract thing, but I, I think, I think this stuff is really important to talk about early on. I mean, people say, you know, the, the dating phase, you know, it's just lovey dovey and so on. But if you're interested in settling down, I mean, gosh, ask the deep questions and uh, you're either find someone who is interested in the deep questions, which is a good thing, because you can't run a family without answering the deep questions. How are we going to raise our kids? What's our relationship to discipline, to 
to religion, to in-laws, to family, extended family, to community, to all of that. I mean, you, you got to have those deep questions. And I think early on in the dating phase, it's really important to focus on those deep questions. If you've got someone who's willing to discuss them, fantastic. Uh, if not, then um, I would say cut your losses sooner rather than later. I would, um, this is Warren again, um, I would uh, definitely agree with that. And I, on the issue of um, children doing so much better when they're raised by, even by single dads and single moms. Um, and, and but, you know, the, the best way children are raised, by the way, just to elaborate on uh, Stefan's point for a moment, are is in an intact family. Uh, that is really what works the best. The second best way is when children have an equal amount of time with the father and mother, when the father and mother live close to each other, and when there's no bad-mouthing father to mother or mother to father. And, um, and, and then if you have to choose between being raised by a single mom or a single dad, um, even when socioeconomic variables are controlled for, children do uh, significantly better um, being raised by single dads than they do by single moms, which is counterintuitive, but accurate. If you want all the data for that, um, you know, based on um, meta-analyses of the best research on that, it's in a book I wrote called Father and Child Reunion. And that really explains what the dynamic is. But the most important thing to remember is not that children raised by single dads do better than children raised by single moms, but rather children raised in intact families do better than in any other um, family structure. Um, so the um, that's that's one thing. Let me give you five quick things, um, Ryan, that you can that you can that really are things that you need to bring with you to every single date or, that you go on or every single encounter that you have with a with a woman. This is really true in gay in gay relationships as well, um, but with a few modifications that are by with common sense. And the first thing is that you when you're on your that date you there's nothing that you will be able to say to a woman if you are not first caring to her. So your empathetic skills, your caring propensities, those really will serve you well. It's a filter through which um, every woman, um, uh, you, you can't say things to a woman <clears throat> intellectually if they don't think that you care. Um, second is listen first. So if you have something to say, uh, before, you know, ask a woman what she thinks on the issue and listen to her. And when I say listen, I mean listening by asking her, not just sitting there waiting to have your turn, but saying, you know, what I hear you saying is this, you know, did I distort anything? Did I miss anything? Is there anything else you want to add? And when she feels fully heard, that's when she will relax to be able to fully hear you. Uh, third, once that happens, once those first two steps are taken, then take your third step, which is articulate fully what you feel about that issue and articulate it as diplomatically as you can. Because once she is heard, she will not need extreme rhetoric in order to be able to hear you. She'll be able to be a, a much better listener. She'll want to be as good a listener <coughs> as you are. Fourth, you have to also show that you are successful or have potential, you have goals, you have ambition. Um, so if you don't have those things, uh, you really need to work on both, you know, the type of things that Stefan talked about, get, you know, do counseling on that issue, do some really good interventions with yourself and work particularly on the issue of postponed gratification. Uh, postponed gratification is one of the, the key um, pathways to success. 
Um, next on the date, um, you know, be yourself. Um, don't be because being yourself, even though it may alienate the woman on some level, um, it may uh, also it also shows the woman that you have the courage to risk rejection, and the courage to risk rejection is a prerequisite to becoming successful, which the woman intuitively picks up and makes her attracted to you. Um, and then finally. Ask her about her past relationships um, and and let her talk fairly extensively about her past relationships. Draw her out about her past relationships. If the man is always at fault in the past, as Stefan said a minute ago, the best predict predictor of the future is the behavior of the past. You can assume that you will be the next man that is being talked about negatively um, um, by her in the future. Um, so if but if on the other hand, the woman is saying, you know, we broke up, but you know, now that I look back on my relationship, I saw that one of the problems was that that I contributed to it uh, was this, or that I was really the main problem, or I didn't really do this effectively enough. Then that's the type of woman you don't want to be scared away from. That's the type of woman you want to make sure you have a second date with. Does that um, answer some, address some of the issues, Ryan? It's all really good advice. I just. I feel that I've been doing most of that stuff already, um, focusing on like asking about the woman's past experiences, uh, focusing on really connecting with the woman, um, showing that I've got economic potential, can take risks and try to do great things with my life. And even the confidence at the beginning, um, I've had to practice that quite a bit, but Mm -hmm. I've had some pretty spectacular approaches of women that have impressed a lot of my guy friends, but it's still not really coming together for me. And I don't, as Steph was saying about trying to spend the early dating phase, getting to know the woman and seeing how that will affect the later dating, I don't even get past date number two. Like, well, sorry, but what's, what's your sorry, uh, Ryan? What, what's your template yeah. for the value of a woman? Like, what, what, what sort of what sort of family structure did you come from? So I had both parents. It was pre-egalitarian. Um, my mom and dad both worked full time. Um, my mom did more of the household chores, um, a lot of the cooking and such. And she got home earlier to, like, bury us kids around to our different activities. Um, but in that sense, a lot of what I got from, for the template of a woman was not all that much different than man. So let me, talk, let me ask you about this, Ryan. When you're with a woman, um, do you... Um, reach out, take her hand, do you kiss her? Uh, do you reach out and initiate kissing her? Do you do that when she's not even sure that, when you're not even sure whether she's interested in that or not? For me, more often, it's uh, failing to do that when she is interested. It's something I'm working on, but um, that, that's just kind of from my background, that's uh, I came from like a sexually paranoid uh, background, so it's been something I'm working on. I'm getting better at. But Good. 
let me let me talk with you a bit about that, Ryan, because it's really crucial that that um, that whatever messages you got about the, the, the basic cultural message is sex is dirty, boys, you initiate the dirt. Um, and therefore, and the result of that is this from the sex is dirty message that boys and men, because we're interested in sex even more than women are, uh, that we start feeling shame about our interest in sex. And yet women need, but women are also fearful of risking rejection with us because when you, when you, when you reach out and you take, uh, and, and, and uh, when you're a female and you reach out, you're fearful that the guy will see you as um, you know, not desirable because you're sort of too, um, because you're initiating and you're not very feminine. So very, women do really play that role. So they, women will be much more attracted to you if you're the one initiating and you initiate, you can assume that if a woman is out with you and she, part of what will turn her on is you're initiating because she sees you're a man who's able to take risks and able to risk rejection. There is a historical and biological reason women are interested in men who take risks because in life in general, men who don't take risks, no matter how bright they are, no matter how, no matter how empathetic they are, they don't get very far. And so women are on an unconscious level wanting that. And you don't have to worry about the sensitivity part of it that I would that I would I would play the other side of that coin if I sensed from you that you were sort of an arrogant male who just wanted men women to go to bed with him. You're you're not in that category. I don't have to worry about that with you. So, but the the deeper work that really absolutely needs to be done and probably done with a good sex therapist is working on feeling, um, seeing sex from a very positive, sex positive type of way. So I would really encourage that. I think that once you do that, that you have to solve that issue first before you feel comfortable um, initiating um, sexually and, and then, um, and, and then begin to go out there and do the sexual initiation to a, a much greater degree. Does that make sense? It does. And i sorry, Ryan, just before we move on to the next caller, and I, I know it's a big topic, but you mentioned uh, that you have a, a history of sexual uh, paranoia, sexually paranoid history. I'm not sure what that means. If you could just explain that a bit. Yeah. So my mom was raised in a devout Catholic household and then a lot of those same messages that she got about, you know, sex being bad, at least openly outside of the context of a marriage, got transmitted through me. And I guess a specific example to show what that looked like was, you know, as a kid, if there would be some sort of sexual portrayal on TV or something like that, and my mom was in the room, she would say all hopefully i don't like you watching that and if she's got access to the remote she'll go and change the channel immediately that is a really good example of um, both sexual paranoia but also the behaviors that emanates of sexual shame and once a boy is or a girl is feeling negative about sexuality um, their whole their whole relationship to love and intimacy is really messed up with. And so if, if you're a parent listening now, um, let me just address you for a moment. 
there's a real litmus test you can use that's very much related to what Ryan is talking about, about sexual shame. So you walk into, um, imagine yourself uh, having a 13 and an eight-year-old child, one girl, one boy, and they're both watching TV. And you see CSI or some type of murder mystery uh, program on TV. Uh, do you imagine yourself noticing your 13 and eight, uh, your nine-year-old child or whatever, uh, watching that CSI and just moving on to the kitchen and continuing your work? Probably you do. Um, now, imagine yourself 10 minutes, uh, 10 hours or 10 days later, walking by the same TV, the same two children are watching it. But this time there's a naked man whose penis is erect going into the naked vagina of a woman that's visual on TV. Do you, are you more likely to go over and turn the TV off, be shocked, take the remote away from your, your son or daughter and say, what are you doing watching that? Where did you get that from? If your answer is yes, and the chances are about 99.9% that it is, uh, that is that you're more likely to take the remote and be shocked and ha be chastising with the, the naked people having sex than you are with the people killing each other. The basic message to your son and your daughter is that sex is worse than um, murder. And that's a pretty tough message to send your children out with. Uh, your daughter, rather than being sexually open and re receptive and involved and fluid, uh, which is a very key um, key dimension of maintaining a good marriage and relationship, uh, will be much more constrained and, and fearful. And your son will be, you know, he's the one that's going to be told to take the initiatives. And he's also going to be told to respect, love and care for women. So if we're told respect, love and care for women and sex is terrible and dirty, and he knows he wants sex um, more than the average woman does, and he certainly wants it from the beautiful women more than the beautiful woman, maybe want it with him, uh, you're putting him in an extremely challenging position for the rest of uh, for the rest of his life, but particularly during his single years. And so uh, this is... And so this underlying message, which is not just common to Catholicism, but almost to all strong religious uh, upbringings, is, um, is all over the world, by the way, um, is really something that needs to be questioned by a, a very good sex therapist. And, and probably you know, 90 some odd percent of the population needs to be working with a sex therapist on these issues. Oh, I mean, I, I, I echo that and I'll, I'll try to avoid my <laughs> usual spittle-laced rant. But, I mean, the reality, of course, is that the average child, by the time they reach 18, has witnessed tens or over 100,000 acts of violence on television, and not to mention video games where it's immersive and you are the enactor of the violence. But, dear God, Janet Jackson's nipple gets exposed uh, during a dance <laughs> routine and everybody goes insane. I mean, I, I sometimes try to travel down the path towards the future and this is something i learned from voltaire and the, the enlightenment writers did wonderful wonderful jobs of exposing the insanity of their existing culture by pretending that they were you know the, the savages quote savages who came from north america uh, after the discovery of north america they come to the court of of louis the 16th or whatever and they they try to understand how this culture works trying to understand how your culture works from the outside is a wonderful outside the matrix mental exercise i think it really is the essence of philosophy you know not that i'm a platonist but we want to get to the platonic forms of the truth and not try and drill through the cultural distortions the shadows on the cave wall as Socrates talked about and in the future they will look at us as positively medieval and they will wonder how we manage to morally stomach uh, pumping endless amounts of violence into our children's minds which is always negative while at the same time instilling in them a truly medieval Tertullian style horror 
of the simple act of joyful sexuality. I mean, it is just completely insane. And in the future, they will look back and they will absolutely not understand how we were able to tie our shoelaces, given how insane we were about the basics of life. Anyway, I just <laughs> wanted to point that out. I could go on, but uh, I think we have some more callers. Thank you so much for sharing, Ryan. Uh, I hope that it somewhat helps, but um, I think the neg- I think uh, I think uh, Warren's right that the negative descriptions of sex, the implicit negativity around sex and masturbation and so on is, uh, uh, is, really, uh, is really terrible, and it does leave a, a very negative legacy. I so, James, if we, can move on to, yeah, if we could move on to the next caller, I think that would be most excellent. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say also for myself, uh, I've always sort of, I've, I've got my own issues or my own hang-ups, or um, not just out of, out, of the, out of the clear blue sky, but from my history. About sexuality and the thought of going to a sex therapist is kind of kind of terrifying um but maybe it's a good place to consider going for that particular aspect of my history or you know if you want to start in a safer place perhaps do some reading and uh, somebody who writes good stuff on this issue is a fellow named marty klein um, k-l-e-i-n and just look up Marty Klein's sexuality. Um, I think his most recent book is Sexual Intelligence, and he's really a very thoughtful um, player on this area. If you're interested in some of the more um, cross-cultural dynamics of how sexuality got distorted and, and became a problem and, and how it plays itself out in its current culture, um, a book I wrote called The Myth of Male Power deals most effectively with that. Mm. But I'd suggest um, starting with uh, with Marty Klein and um, and his and his work on sexual intelligence. All right, thank you. Um, next up today we have Brian. Hello, can you guys hear me? Yes, go ahead. Oh, cool. Um, I have a more abstract question than the last caller. Um, it's more about. Uh, like uneven distributions in society between men and women. Um, I really had a question uh, if you thought the cause of uneven distributions was based more on discrimination, environmental incentives, or like a biological or innate causes for... Uh, Sorry, uneven, like I just want to make sure I understand. Uneven distributions of what? Of like socioeconomic status and stuff like that for women and men. Or, or like earnings. Like Oh, so, like, so you, the, the typical thing about... The pay gap? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, go ahead, Doctor. But, I mean, not even specifically that. It could be other things, too. I'm sure there's other yeah. uneven distributions that we wouldn't necessarily expect in society that we do see. The uh, Stefan, do you want to start with that, or do you want me to? No, no. I think it? this is your uh, this is your field more <laughs> right. than mine. Right. Um, okay. So the um, here is the bit. I'm going to work on the gender pay gap because I've written the book I wrote, Why Men Earn More, is is completely focused on that issue, and the gender pay gap is one of the most misunderstood things of our time, and it sort of plays into where I th- sense your question is leading which is that we, we believe that men earn more women more money than women for the same work. Uh, basically, what is true is that men earn more money than women. What is not true is not for the same work. Uh, so we often hear that it is for the same work because it's, you know, based, it's controlled for numbers of hours worked um, and so on. But it's, it is not controlled for mo- many of the most important variables. So when I, when I did the research for why men earn more, I found that there were 25 things that men and women do differently in the workplace. 
every single one of those 25 things leads to men earning more money, but every one of those 25 things leads on average to women having more balanced lives, doing more fulfilled work and so on. So let me give it an example of that. So men, for example, are much more likely to be um, to become engineers. When we ask people, whether they want to be an engineer or they want to be a writer or an artist, the great majority of people would prefer to be a writer or an artist than be an engineer or a mathematician. Um, but men intuit ahead of time that being an engineer or um, is going to be more likely to make them more money than the than 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 being an artist or a writer, which usually is preceded by the word starving artist or starving writer. <laughs> and so the. Um, and so the men um, know that in order to be, uh, if they ever want to get married and, and have children and um, and be a, a father, that the, the woman who marries them is going to want to have options, options to be involved in taking care of the children or options to be involved in um, being uh, in the workplace. And so options are best uh, attained by marrying a man who earns money. And so men know that we are more lovable the more money we earn. And so we go out and we figure out what we can do to earn more money. But it's not earning more money we think of as power but in fact it's often pay is about uh, is a is a paradox uh, the pay paradox is that the you get the power uh, you you what you do to earn money, earning money is a toll road. Um, to earn more money, you pay tolls, like you tolls of working more hours, tolls of uh, working in hazardous jobs, tolls of traveling a great deal during weekends, tolls of doing things you don't want to do in order to, uh, basically working for somebody else. And so, the so you lose power, but earning money is about losing power in order to gain power. The power you gain is the power of the paycheck. Right, and the so purchasing power. the purchasing power. So it's the paradox of that. And so the, so when we look at the gap between pay between men and women, um, it is, so it appears that for example, the uh, males earn more than females. But if you say, well, wait a minute, suppose both the male and the female are a doctor, then that gap in pay goes down if they're both doctors. But there's still men who are doctors earn significantly more than women who are doctors. So you take the magnifying glass to the next level and you say, well, wait a minute, men who are doctors are more likely to be cardiologists, let's say, or surgeons, and women are more likely to be general practitioners. So let's compare cardiologists to cardiologists and general practitioners to general practitioners. Well, then the pay gap, the, the gap between male and female pay shrinks enormously, but there's still a gap between male and female pay. So then you take that to the next level and you say, well, wait a minute, what about um, general practitioners who work in their private practice versus comparing them to uh, versus who work in uh, HMOs, uh, then who earns more? Then you find the person in the private practice who's been working more years, who has more uh, a, more hours that they put into their into their work that when you control for the hours the years work the amount of specializations they have the types of specializations they go into uh, that's when you find that the pay is not there's not a pay gap between the genders there's an equal amount of time um, uh, equal amount earned but there's so many distortions let's say for example a you go you go to school as an art history major oh, are you more likely to be female or male the chances are you're much more likely to be female and so you take an art history major who graduates and then you compare her to a let's say a person without a college education who picks up garbage 
who is likely to earn more, who's more likely to be, um, the chances are the person picking out garbage, picking up garbage needs to, not picking out garbage, but picking up garbage, right. <laughs> um, earns, earns more. Um, because we all need our garbage picked up, but we don't all need an art history major as much as we need our, um, our garbage picked up so that there's more. So the more fulfilling your occupation is, and women are far more likely to choose occupations based on the criteria of fulfillment, um, the more fulfilling your occupation is as a rule, the less it pays. The reason it pays less is because, first of all, there because of supply and demand, there are more people competing right. competing for things that are fulfilling than are competing to pick up garbage, and so um, and so that therefore the person who wants a fulfilling occupation, like I have as a, as an author in talking to you, um, are far more likely to earn significantly less money, and so those are the things that need to be controlled for, and to to frame men's greater likelihood to earn more money as privilege and power is to completely miss the concept, the idea that in many respects, it's compensation for our feelings of inferiority. We're, we, when we pay for women on a date, that's basically saying, I am not worthy of your love and your romantic interest until I pay for you. That means I have to compensate for my inequality by paying for you. The person who's paying is compensating for their inequality. If you were to pay me to be a consultant, the amount that you're paying me is the amount that you're compensating for your inequality to my time when you're asking me about the areas in which I am the expert. And so that's the, you know, and the, all those things have not been understood. But so if you're, if you're interested in a much greater depth and explanation of that, um, I don't want to elaborate here, but it's in why men earn more that's really explains that much more effectively cool so you don't think that the that it's a problem though you don't think that it's a problem like so so you're saying that the uneven distributions are uh conform to like some concept of justice in supply and demand but also that there are uh environmental incentives that uh create these uneven distributions as well so it's like a combination of a lot of different factors yeah well let's see none of which are really discrimination right like well well, i'm saying in the gender area that that the the male female um you know discrimination is 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 really not the there there are many areas of male and female discrimination uh women are discriminated against in certain um careers and professions and historically in this in this area have been significantly discriminated against but more in the last 25 30 years um, when, for example, when you have never married women who have never had children, as I mentioned earlier in the program, and you compare them to never married men who have never had children, and they both um, have worked equal numbers of years or about the same number age, and they have the same education, and they're both working full time, the never married women in that category, that group of um, descriptors I just gave, they have out-earned their male counterparts since the 70s, and today oh. they out-earned their male counterparts by 17%. And so oh. gen- gender discrimination now, uh, and that's because there's also a whole series of discriminations against men. I mean, you, if you um, train to be a massage therapist and you're a male, uh, you are not going to be as much in a demand as as females <laughs> are. If you if you train to be a dental hygienist, the average person does not want a man's fingers in his mouth as much as a woman's fingers in in his in his in his mouth. And so it's even though 10% of the people who train to be dental hygienists are men, only about one half of one percent of the people who have 
jobs as dental hygienists are men. And so you go on and on about discriminations um, that impact both genders because of our stereotypes gender-wise. In terms of the broader issues of, you know, why do certain people make more than others and should there be environmental constraints on that? Um, the, the, the decision about whether or not we should have things like minimum wage, those are really the freedoms involved in a decision like that is the freedom to make a social contract or not make a social contract. In other words, um, if you want, if if you make a decision as a, as a society that you want to be sure that people who work full time um, have a certain minimum wage, then the freedom involved in that is the freedom to say that's something that I that, that I have as a stronger value than than the freedom to go out there and um and to maybe earn $2 an hour because maybe I can't get a job that earns more than that and I would not have a job at all if there was a minimum wage. So those are things that you have to sort of balance as to you know where are your values and any society, you know, the, the freedom really comes in the, the freedom to make whatever social contract that you want and live in a society that has a social contract that is, that is most um, connected to your values. Let me just uh, throw one thing as well, because there is, I mean, the data does not support in general the discrimination against uh, women, but yet it is so strongly perceived of in society. And I think this comes down to a problem of funding. Yeah, <laughs> I think that, of course, uh, uh, most questions come down to sex, power or economics. <laughs> and I think this is a little bit more on the on the third and and um, uh, so every revolution should be voluntarily funded. It has to be voluntarily funded because otherwise, how on earth do you know when it's over, right? So let's say someone comes to your house, bing bong, they knock on the door, ding, ding, ding. Listen, dude, you got to give me money. We really want to eradicate polio in Cleveland. And <laughs> you'd be like, look it up quickly. Hey, wait a minute, there's no polio in Cleveland. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, okay, no, no, wait, wait. We need to we need to get rid of slavery. In Alaska, oh, dick, dick, dick. hey, wait a minute, there's no slavery in Alaska. I mean, what are you talking about? I'm not going to give you money for that, right? Because these goals have been achieved. These goals have been achieved. And whenever you have coerced or state funding of any revolution, the revolution extends itself beyond all reason. And after the original problems have been solved, it busily sets itself about inventing new pseudo problems to continue its funding. If you voluntarily have to fund something, then you know when it's over. Because you achieved your goals, we've ended polio, smallpox, slavery, all these other kinds of good things. And so people start funding it. And then people go on and are released to find more productive ventures. But the moment you start to have academics involved and, and government funding, and, and up here in Canada, literally hundreds of millions of dollars goes to, uh, to feminist groups. And what are they going to do? Are they going to say, no, 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 here, take the money back. I think we've achieved most of what we want to achieve. We're going to go and uh, do something more productive with our time. No, they start to invent stuff. And this is very well documented. I would recommend, of course, some great, uh, uh, I would say, extremely competent feminist writers like Phyllis Schlafly, uh, Christina Hoff Summons, even some Ann Coulter stuff is great. Um, yeah, Who Stole Feminism is a fantastic book. And she goes into great detail, Christina Hoff Summers, about how for instance, the recent, quote, crisis in women's education. Women, girls lose so much self-esteem between the age of 8 and 14. I mean, the data is incredibly sketchy. And yet, because of the amount of social energy and really government-enforced uh, money behind it, it ended up producing quite a revolution in education to the point where now the pendulum has swung so far to the other side that uh, Philip Zimbardo's got books out, and lots of people have books out called The Demise of Guys about how 
men are just being incredibly shortchanged in the educational environment, boys and men, and being drugged at nine times the rate of girls and graduating at far lower rates, far fewer of them in college and so on. And, you, of course, you don't hear that because men's groups don't get huge amounts of government funding and there's not a particular bias towards understanding those issues in the media. So uh, I think it's important to recognize where the perception is and where the reality is. Uh, the gap between those two explains a lot. Um, I, this is Warren again. Um, yes, I very much agree with a, a great deal of what Stefan is saying there. The Once something becomes institutionalized, really, um, in, in any area, um, it is, you know, when I first worked for the U.S. Department of Education, when early, very early in my career, when I was a kid, um, the I was uh, shocked in my first meetings that I walked into, and they would say things like, you know, our, it looks like we're we're not getting, we're not fulfilling our budget this year, and if we don't spend everything we have, we are not going to be able to get the same budget next year. And I would raise my hand and say, excuse me, but isn't it a good thing that we're producing the things we need to do um, you know, for, for less money? And they say, well, well, the problem, you know, Warren, and looking at me very sweetly, like I'm an yeah. innocent little boy, um, is that, you know, if we don't, as I said, if we don't do this, if we don't, if we do this effectively this year, we're going to be punished by a smaller budget next year, which will make us less able to do the things we need to do. And so that's just one of a thousand examples of um, the the way um, government bureaucracies do tend to perpetrate themselves. Um, and certainly in, in the United, in Canada, where, you know, boys are falling significantly behind girls as they are in every one of the top 35 industrialized nations according to the OECD of the UN um, they the, um, the, the but in Canada you know the the boys are um, uh, 51 points behind girls on reading scores and they're also you know behind girls on writing scores and so and reading and writing are the single biggest predictors of um, of not being able to get a job and not graduating from high school and not graduating from college and so there's yeah you know, but but these things but yet we have ministries for women in Canada but not ministries for men in Canada and in, in the United States you know we have um, men are still dying five years sooner than women and people just think that's a biological difference but in fact it's not a biological difference in 19 uh, 1900 uh, the average woman lived to be age 46 the average man lived to be age 45 there was only a one-year life expectancy gap between women and men today there's a 5.2 year life expectancy gap between women and men and yet there are seven federal offices of women's health and zero federal offices of men's health, yeah. despite that um, that gap. And so, there is definitely a propensity, um, you know. And I was, you know, the leading male voice on the the women's movement um, in throughout all of the world in the uh, in the late '60s and early '70s. I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. And so, I do not come at this without an understanding of of the value of much of what the women's movement has contributed. But once something becomes institutionalized, it is extremely difficult for the institution to become introspective. Um, and what we've done with gender is we should really have at the very minimum four gender discussions happening simultaneously in every university at the same time. We should have it uh, by liberal women like feminists. We should have it by conservative women like Phyllis Schlafly. We should have it by or Christina Huff Summers. We should have it by liberal men, of which I am one, and, or, and we should have it by conservative men. And so all four of those discussions need to be happening 
um, at the same time in order to have a balanced view of what's happening with genders. And those are only the, the starting discussions um, to say I'm not even incorporating here, you know, people who have foci on transgender issues or gay issues, but, you know, they would become um, a, a portion of that whole discussion. Well, thank you so much. Excellent. For now, listen, question. we've still got... Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, thank you so much for your question. We still have another few callers, um, so we'd like to get into them before the show. The inevitable curtain of podcasting comes slamming down like the wall of night on our show. So, uh, James, we have another person up? Yes, um, we have one more at the moment. Um, his name is Matt. Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. Hello. Hey, I really love your stuff, Warren. It's really great. Thank you. Um, Okay, yeah, so my questions, I'm afraid you may have just answered them, but it's um, about like... Sorry, Matt, to interrupt, can you just, um, sorry to interrupt, can you just back off from your mic a little bit? Uh, Yeah, is this better? Yes, thank you, please go ahead. Okay, cool. Um, My question is like, what has led to the implosion of feminism? Because my understanding, Warren, is like that you, you kind of think the feminist movement has really been good in liberating women from gender roles that they've been in mm-hmm. right giving uh, extending like the choices that they have that's correct um and how is that how is it like how is because it's initially a good thing how has like feminism grown into this um thing that works against women really fundamentally mm-hmm. uh, and like it has it grown and has it always kind of been doomed potentially because i really don't understand fem- feminism too well but um when I think of like the word feminism, like that it's focused on women in relation to the world, and it's not really focused on just men and women um, in relation to the world. It's kind of like it's inherently not focused on men. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and and with that, like what now that it's kind of become this kind of monster <laughs> that uh, doesn't want really to look in the mirror. Like what what is it that attracts women to feminism now? Yes. Um, well, good. Very, very important question. And so here's here's what was good and here's what was bad about it. Um, in the begin in the beginning of the women's movement, the second round of the women's movement, the second wave of the women's movement in the late '60s, um, basically um, feminists felt it, it was after World War II. Um, it in industrialized countries where there was um, and in the portions of industrialized countries where there were people who were middle class and above. Uh, there were um, women were married to men who uh, the the women who were part of the feminist movement were basically women who were quite well educated. They were usually married to men who were fairly successful. Um, when 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 we become successful economically, we start having a freedom. The freedom is to look at what do I want more than just money alone? Uh, do I I want to be respected? I want to have options. I want to be able to go out there and and be fulfilled in the work world, but at the same time I want to be able to have the option to be full-time involved with my children, or I want to have the option to do some combination of both. And so in the in the 1950s, six, early 60s era, the expectation was you know, that women were supposed to be, if you were a very talented and bright woman, you were supposed to be a teacher or a nurse at the, um, you know, or, um, or a secretary. And so if you wanted to work, but <clears throat> basically you should put your your energy and your focus into your family. And there's a lot of you know positive value to, for anybody putting their energy and focus into a family, but women didn't want to be limited that way when men weren't. And so the, because we were, but nobody sort of saw 
the the strength and the weakness of that argument. The strength is that who wants to limit, limit women? The weakness of the argument was, well, wait a minute, no one sort of said that both genders had historically been limited. Um, that is that women were limited to raising children and men were limited to raising money. And both, so men and women both had a different experience of powerlessness. Uh, women's experience of powerlessness was, was obvious. They didn't have the choice to raise money in as many diverse ways as, as men did. Men's experience of powerless, was, powerlessness was never articulated. Basically, men were in unable to unconsciously understand that feeling obligated to earn money that someone else spent while they died sooner was not a very good definition of power. That power is really about better defined as controlling your own life. But men had bought into this sort of invisible definition, like if I'm going to be a powerful man, I have to earn money. Well, the second you say to somebody you have to do something, you're no, you're no longer talking about power or freedom like almost every libertarian understands because you're not controlling your own decisions. And so re, so people, we, we ideally should have started not a women's movement, but what I call a gender transition movement in which we said, we now have survival enough mastered in the middle and upper middle class and industrialized countries to be able to um, focus on fulfillment to a better degree, which would then free men to be more involved, to be the full-time fathers that they wish, free men to be full-time workers, full-time fathers of some combination of both. Uh, that would free men equally to freeing women to be full-time mothers, full-time um, uh, workers, or some combination of both. So no one looked at a, the need for a gender transition movement to uh, move from the old rigid roles of the past to more flexible roles of the future, which would it be, and how to make a transition to the those to those with both sexes working together to do that. Instead, we took the civil rights model because the civil rights model was before us. And the, and we also took the Marxist feminist, uh, the, Mar the Marxist model. So we had two models that were politically powerful among the educated and the, and the wealthier people in the industrialized world. One was the civil rights model, which said that blacks were oppressed by whites and there was slave owner and slave. And we saw, aha, uh -huh, women are sort of being oppressed by men. Let's think, uh, and we, we put the men and women into that dichotomous win-lose type of model. And then the Marxist model was there were oppressors and oppressed. There was the there was the wealthy and there was the working class and the, the, the wealthy were oppressors of the, of the working class who were oppressed. And so who were most likely the workers? More like the workers, it was males. And who were more likely the the therefore the oppressed it was females or, or so it was believed and so we instead of taking a gender transition model of both sexes historically were limited by their roles and both sexes now had the ability to be free from their roles we took we were taking instead a, a an oppressor oppressed model and and feminism adopted those oppressed oppressor models that became part of academic thinking that is in every gender study class in at, at all the major universities all over the industrialized world and so um, and and it hasn't been questioned and that's what needs to be questioned um, if there's really going to be 
um, a, a, a compassion between men and women and a, a, a working with our sons um, that is effective because our sons in the United States for the first time in U.S. history, our sons will have less education than our dads. And in Canada, our sons are, are just doing are doing as badly and, and as as is true in most of the industrialized world. Does that respond to your question? Yeah, completely. Um, so, yeah, why? What? What attracts women to feminism now? Then, well, some women are attracted to feminism, and some women aren't. Um, uh, what attracts women to feminism? The ones who are attracted to feminism feel like, well, gee, I want more rights, and you know, and uh, and and they do buy into the argument that that you know that they are um, you know there's discriminate you know that men are still earning more money than women for the same work they feel um, inaccurately but they feel that way um, because that's what they're being told and then they look around and they say what is power about power is about well let's see um, who has the most positions of power and who does have the most positions of power? Institutional power. Clearly, males have more positions of power uh, than than females do uh, of institutionalized power. Uh, but that, but that, and and so looking at those brief synopses of of um of those two de types of definitions of power, it appears to many women that there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made for women because they don't look at the hundred or so other variables about um, how many, um, about the fact that when a, when a woman, for example, gets to earn about 100,000 US dollars a year, um, she begins to start saying, I don't want to earn more money. I want more time with myself for my private time. I want more time with my women friends. I want more time to travel. I want more spiritual time. I want more time with my husband. I want more time with my children and more time with other things because she wants a more balanced life. And what is power about? Power is about a balanced life. So a woman makes a decision when she earns somewhere between 80 and $115,000 a year, she tends to make a decision that she wants a more balanced life. So therefore she does is, is less likely to become the CEO of a major company because she doesn't want to spend her time that way. That's real power. That's what men need to learn from about women. And that's what the whole, but by being told that women aren't as likely to be uh, the heads of companies or the heads of um, governments, she falsely assumes that women have less power and that the result, that is not a result of her decision and her freedom and her real power to make a decision to have a balanced life. It's a result of, um, she assumes discrimination and that's what attracts women to feminism without looking at a full dimension of the picture. Right, yeah. And, and a thought I have as well, it's like, it's a really good way to um, give yourself value without actually working to give yourself value like um you know i'm a good person because i'm a woman rather than i'm a good person because i'm you know honest etc all the kind of the virtues so um. you're you're right you're right on target, Matt. Um, you know, men have been trained not to think of ourselves as human beings, but human doings. Um, when you, you know, when a when a woman goes to a party and she says, "Gee, I'm single. Um, let's see, um, you know, is there a guy around here that you know that that you you'd suggest host?" Um, that I could could maybe be connected to, and she'd say, "Well, yeah, the guy over there, he's a he's just finishing med school, and the guy there is a, an attorney at such and such a firm, and the guy over there 
is uh, well, he's a, a sweet guy, but you know, you know, he's um, he he likes to write or he likes to be an artist, and he really hasn't done that well. Um, so you don't even she that guy becomes as as invisible to the female host who's connecting up the female um, to a, to a male as an unattractive older woman is to a male um, at a party where he's looking for his next date. And so those um, so women have been much more likely, especially recently, to be valued as human beings. And men are much more valued as the human doings, the doctor, the lawyer, um, you know, the the surgeon, whatever, um, than than as than as human beings. And the freedom that has that we are really on the verge of, if we seize it and take charge of it, is the freedom to be human do, do beings um, rather than be the ones most likely to uh, be expected to go to to war and die or to have to, um, and so we we need to fight to be the elementary school teacher that we wish to be. We need to fight to be a dad full-time, as likely as a mother is a mother full-time, and to have that type of freedom if that's the, our part of our personality. But that's not even considered in the option of male-female dialogue um, when a woman becomes pregnant today. Let me just add something as well, which is that um, the the... And I'll try and keep this brief because I want to make sure we get to the next uh, next question. But I mean, it's a, I've been a stay-at-home dad now for four years, and my wife works, um, and so I've had a kind of female experience from that standpoint. And man alive, the amount of resources it takes to raise—I mean, I only have one child, you know, <laughs> and she's awake fourteen hours a day, and at her age, she needs a, a parent's attention. Uh, statistically about every three minutes. And I mean, you can't get anything else done. You can't get anything else done. And, and I mean, I really don't want to because she's, she's so much fun, but, uh, the, w where do the resources come to provide that luxury to raise your children? I mean, this is a fundamental question and it's a gender question. I mean, it's the most important question, I think. I mean, the, the care of children is, is the future of society and so on. So the, the question is, and this is, I think, something that I've always had a problem with, with sort of the more extreme kinds of feminism, which is, okay, so if you want to have kids, and most people do, uh, if you want to have kids, where are the resources going to come from to raise the children? Traditionally, uh, they have come from uh, the, the father. They have come from the father, and that uh, is, is the constellation, right? The, the, the dad goes out, and as Gil writes what <laughs> talks about, like the Inuit, he goes out in some <laughs> stupid-ass leaky boat trying to throw a toothpick into a 200-ton whale and bring home some blubber. And so the idea that she could be like a feminist and say, I don't need men, it's like, well, no, you really do, because you're going to be incapacitated by pregnancy and breastfeeding and raising children, and so you're going to need someone to bring you resources. And uh, feminists who want to be free of that, I think it's fine. Uh, but then if you want to have kids, the problem is, where do you get the resources to raise the children? And yeah. as we can see from particularly the lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, what happens is they turn to the state. They turn to the state for uh, for food stamps. They turn to the state for subsidized housing, for a free daycare, for, for free, quote, free public school, for uh, health care, for dental care, for, I mean, you name it. Uh, there's huge amounts of resources that go into it. And the sort of go-it-alone sister thing is fine if you don't want to have children. If you do want to have children, then someone's going to have to provide those resources. You either save like crazy and then live off your resources during the first, you know, if you have a couple of kids, it's five to, you know, five to seven to ten years if you want to stay home till they're five. So that's a lot of money to save, save up. Or you rely on a husband to bring home your resources. 
uh, or you have to turn to the state. I think turning to the state is uh, has caused huge amounts of, of problems uh, because having liberated men from the need to provide women, it keeps men in a state of perpetual immaturity of uh, adolescence. And uh, there's less incentive for them to grow up to uh, attain and achieve uh, success, financial success and, and emotional maturity and responsibility and so on. And I think that ties, uh, sorry, if we can just get to, uh, to the next question, which I'm just going to read from the chat room. Uh, I'll try not to do a Valley Girl accent, although when the questions are phrased like this, a phrase like this, I always want to. A question for your guest, uh, like, uh, what's up with all the single people in the U.S., man? Why aren't more people getting married? And is there a correlation to the issue of divorce? Uh, also, if you could touch on low birth rates. And what are your thoughts? Good, doctor. Yes. Um, well, first of all, very good question. And the um, and here's how bad it's getting. And I mean, the 53% of women in the United States who um, are under 30, 30 or under, um, are having children without being married. Now, I don't have an issue with marriage as a moral issue, but here's the here's what does come when you're not married. When a child, uh, when a when a woman has a child without being married, in a, in re, like uh, Stefan was just talking about a few moments ago, she is far less likely to involve the husband. The husband is far less likely to be involved. When he does get involved, he's more or less more likely to feel like he's being gatekept. That is, he's treated like a babysitter, like he's uh, like the female values of protect the child and don't and be careful the way you play and don't take risks that are more likely to dominate uh, than the male values are of um, uh, you know if they if the t if the teacher if the child's in a classroom where the teacher is too strict and the child comes home to mom the 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 mom will be more likely to say I'll call the school and work something out we'll get you out of that class the dad is more likely to say something like excuse me sweetie um, but you're going to have all your life you're going to have people you don't want to work with that don't want to like this is a good experience for you to learn how to get along with somebody that you don't inherently like and the mother and father will have a huge argument in a, in, a, in an intact family that argument is likely to take place unless the male withdraws and feels he can't win can't have sex can't get emotional responsiveness from a woman uh, when he doesn't have that argument and so when when men are either defeated in that type of balance of um, parental power um, in um, in in a in an intact relationship or when women have children out of wedlock um, and they don't um, have the man involved much at all, then the child tends to grow up um, overprotected um, and the woman is feels very stressed out because she's trying to juggle a world between working and um, and the, and the, and her reliance on the state very frequently and then also her her need to connect with the children the children it's a very difficult job when you have um, as as Stefan just said because the child takes so much time um, you're you are you don't have time to really be an effective worker um, and be, raise children full time. And so you end up doing things like turning to the state and, and excluding the male from the process. At the same time, we haven't trained men to think to, from early childhood years to think of it as being a viable option to be a full-time dad and to be and present that. And so if a woman wants to be a have-it-all woman, have a great career um, and, and have successful marriage and have a successful children, what she needs to be looking for is a man like Stefan who, uh, who would allow her to be fully focused on the career while the child was raised in a devoted, caring, loving, um, attentive way 
Um, and but many women, instead of looking for a guy like Stefan, excuse me, Stefan, for <laughs> using you as the example here, but the um, is is much more likely to say, um, you know, oh, I don't, you know, I want a man who will at least earn as much as I do as a prerequisite uh, for um, uh, getting married. And so that's the and so the next stage of in a, the evolution of the human species is encouraging men um, to be able to think of themselves as being lovable, as having purpose by being full-time dads, as much as we think of a woman as having purpose by being a full-time mom, especially when the children are young, uh, because very clearly children do best uh, when they have an equal amount of both parenting, but when they can't have an equal amount of both parenting, uh, then a father involvement is much more likely uh, to give children um, boundary enforcement and boundary enforcement is much more likely to lead to postponed gratification. That's much more likely to lead to uh, a child being more likely to be successful and therefore having a higher self-esteem, being more likely to be empathetic and assertive and not aggressive. And so those types of things um, are you know needed as the next stage of, um, of uh, liberation. I'm not positive I answered your question fully, so maybe uh, go back over the core of the question again and I'll see if I missed any portions of it. Sure. Um, so it is around, of course, the the decline in marriage, uh, which has, of course, got a lot of a lot of causes, and also the decline in birth rate. And I agree with you, of course, that I mean, women, if they want to go out and have a great career, then they need a man to stay home. Unfortunately, the breasts, if I remember correctly, I, I'm no doctor, but the breasts tend to go with the woman uh, where the woman goes, and uh, breastfeeding does seem to be very positively correlated with infant well-being. So that's all kind of tricky. I mean, you really are fighting nature, you know, and I, I remember um, uh, reading an article written by a woman who said, you know, she's in a corporate washroom pumping milk in, you know, through a machine into a bottle and so on. And just thinking like, wow, this is not exactly a state of nature kind of motherhood. I mean, that is really far away from how we were sort of designed to be raised. And I think, so if the mom does want the, um, to breastfeed and, and to breastfeed a series of children, uh, which I, uh, is for the best. I mean, if you're just going to make decisions based upon what's best for the kids, then that's what you would do. I mean, that does take her out of the workforce for a significant amount of time. I mean, there's there's a lot that I can do, but you know, I'm I'm all taps and no plumbing when it comes to the boobs, so <laughs> I can't really do yeah. much of that. Absolutely, and and the, you know, just to be clear, the data does support what you're saying, Stefan. That the, you know, the children who are breastfed, that there is something about human milk from the mom that is that has more nutrients in it that are effective for children's development uh, than there is about you know cow milk or um, or goat milk or whatever uh, for the, for the child. And so that is very so that that type of those types of things need to be worked out. And you know, so one of the possibilities is you know that in Canada, as you know, that you have uh, paternity leave and you also have maternity leave. And so the society has to ask itself the question because we because ch you know children that are functional are important to our life. Uh, do we want to provide that uh, for for um, for people as part of the transition, or do we do or do we not? And you know, I don't care which way you come down at that, but there there are plus, pluses and minuses uh, to both to both types of modal modalities. But it's a question that needs to be asked. Stefan, how did you and your wife work that out? Well, she stayed um, uh, she stayed home uh, for a year, uh, actually no more than a year, and and she she breastfed, and um, uh, so uh, she was able to to keep that going. And then, um, and, and she did work sort of part time for some of that time, uh, but uh, we were able to keep that continuity going. Uh, and I think it was about 18 months or so that she, she stopped uh, and, uh, 
it's i mean i think it's essential i mean there's there's also the antibodies right you get a stronger immune system uh, through through being breastfed uh, which is of course quite important i mean you don't want to be one of those kids who's oh yes my first eight years were having a cold uh, so um yeah so i i think there is that just sort of um the the nature is not egalitarian from that standpoint and there are some feminists who will argue sort of grimly that until men can give birth and breastfeed there just isn't going to be that kind of equality uh, because uh, it, but these are all just choices i mean if you don't want to have kids then you can live the life of a single man uh, and and if you do want to have kids then you know if you want to do what's best for them that's going to interrupt your career if the, the breastfeeding and so on and then you can go back to it and the the husband can stay home has been uh, the case with me but it's um these are all just choices and of course i mean everybody wants the best of every world right of course i mean but you know the, the reality is that every every plus comes with a minus and, and vice versa um i just uh, yeah. wanted to uh, sorry go ahead yeah, you go ahead, Stefan. That's, that's fine. No, no, I, this is a new question. So if you have something to add to that one, then uh, if you could finish off, that'd be great. Yeah, it's. Um, I think this is really a question where everybody has to come together. The, 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 we do have to realize that there's a huge amount of um, orientation toward the male um, as the worker to the degree that we – and so – CEOs or medical doctors, they were expected to work 60 to 90 hours a week. And people who work in the 70, 80, 90 hour a week category, certain types of things happen. They tend to be totally exhausted. The women tend to be home feeling that they're isolated. Um, the men tend to have affairs. They tend to be, uh, become more alcoholic in their orientation. They feel lonely and isolated in their uh, huge amount of travel or uh, medical doctors who work that level tend to become sloppy with patients. And so there's, um, and that's the old male model where we felt that the, you know, that, 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 that we, uh, that when a man had a position, he was had two or three or four or five children he had to support, that we could just, that he would not stop um, with his, uh, with getting to a, um, uh, he would be willing to work as many hours as was required to get more of a, a status and, and honor in the society. And that's what, one of the things that we need to question. So, for example, we need to have MBA programs, I believe, um, do uh, work with having uh, a top positions um, being um, filled by three or four people working together um, so that if you and I were interested in, you know, in, in um, libertarian issues, uh, Stefan, that we would and, and we had, were the president of some society on that issue. And it was it was a worldwide society. It was taking a great deal of time that rather than have it be Stefan or Warren Farrell or, you know, Joe Jones, uh, that there would be four of us working in one function. But the training to work in one function is both viable because of all the technology that is happening in it today that was never available in the past, but it's also a new set of skills as to how to communicate with each other, how to juggle it, how to learn from people that have done this well, how to learn from people who have failed. And so these are the types of discussions that are the discussions of the future and uh, and the discussions of, of um, how to make the home male friendly to dads so dads have support systems when they walk 
into parks uh, with their children uh, that other people aren't, um, they don't see all female groups uh, tied together talking about female types of things that women are educated to incorporate the father, uh, that fathers are educated to uh, know how to incorporate themselves so they have support systems uh, when they're raising children. When our parents recommend um, uh, one of their children to be babysitters that we don't, the parents, as, as parents, we don't automatically say, oh yes, our daughter is available, she's 16 now. We are as likely to say our son is available, he's 16 now. And so there's hundreds of dimensions of discussions that need to occur if we're going to have real freedom on the part of both genders uh, to both raise children as well as raise money. All of freedom has been defined by women having equal opportunities to raise money. Nothing has been very minimal discussions have occurred about men having the freedom to be equally as likely to be honored for the most important single function we have in the world, which is raising children. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, so I think we can squeeze in one more. And thanks again so much. Um, uh, we've got um, a question from the chat room where somebody says, um, the government's role in determining economic guidelines for child support for divorced and unmarried parents. Um, and uh, deadbeat dads, there's a lot of publicity and so on, particularly since the government became involved in the issue. The, the listener is curious to know if this problem really exists. Is it something that has been manufactured by the government? Uh, and um, in general, of course, it, I think a lot of men, I, I did a show on this recently that was quite popular, where I think a lot of men look at marriage as an extremely dangerous uh, situation, you know. I mean, uh, if it works out, great, you know. Uh, but if it doesn't work out, uh, Lord above, it's um, you know, you can really get taken to the cleaners in in pretty horrific kinds of ways. Uh, and um, yeah, so uh, the government's involvement in in the dissolution of, of marriage and and whether that, uh, as the men's rights groups advocate, that that seems to be quite unbalanced uh, in favor of the woman and the mother, and not so much for the the husband and the father. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, unfortunately, I have to say that I agree with that. The the the, the um, I have, um, you know, I I, I, make, I make my living. I thought I made my living as an author, and then I wrote a book called Father and Child Reunion, and that book became so needed by so many dads that were. Um, uh, that were losing um, the ability to be equally involved with their children after divorce, that I ended up not writing a book for the last five years because uh, so many I was responding to the, that demand. And, um, and most of the fathers that called me, by the time they called me, they'd already spent a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars with lawyers and in courts just to become equally involved with the children. Now, this is absurd because it meant that the calls I was getting were almost only from wealthier men that you know millions of men who were less wealthy, they were told by their lawyers who were being very honest with them, if you're gonna fight this battle, it's gonna cost you 150,000 to a quarter million dollars. And you, know, you might as well just pay her more child support and let her be the primary mother and go on and have another marriage and um, you know get, uh, get involved with those children. Um, but and the man, you know, is freaking out. And what's happening here is that that the the system has, yes, tef definitely become so biased that it can't see the forest for the trees. And that is that you know that the the presumption, the law needs to make it clear that the um, that when children have uh, are a ch uh, when there's a divorce. Uh, that three things must happen. Uh, that is that children need to have both parents involved 
And if one parent is to not be involved, the burden of proof needs to be on the parent who doesn't want the other parent involved, um, as that 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 because that parent is abusing or is is um, in some ways a really alienating parent. Uh, that secondly, the children, the mother and father, cannot move away from where the other one was. That you can both move if you want to, but you have your primary responsibility as a parent. Is as a parent, the only way that children, the three things that children need who do best if they're children of divorce is to have both parents equally involved. Secondly, is to have both parents living close enough to each other so that the child doesn't have to forfeit friends and activities when it sees the other parent. And that the third, that the child can hear no bad mouthing from the mother toward the father or the father to the mother. If you have those three things working after divorce, you can have a reasonably decent divorce. Um, every court needs to know that. The law needs to, 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 to do that. Now, most people, most courts in the U.S. and Canada do believe that. But if the woman says, oh, I don't want the father involved because I'm, I'm fearful of him or I want to move to another um, province to, to be with a new man in my life and I can get a better job in this other province or my future husband will have a better job in this other province, um, then the courts tend to say, well, you know, um, that seems perfectly fine to me. I should allow you that freedom. Um, no, they shouldn't allow her that freedom if because the the greater obligation of the court is to understand that you have to you've made a commitment to two children or to two children and the children have your first priority once you have those children and those children do best when there's an equal amount not of a stepfather and a, and a mother not of a stepmother and a and a um, biological father but of the biological parents now i say that when i started the research for for father and child reunion i was a stepfather and um, my bias was in the direction of believing that a stepfather could be every bit as good a father as a biological father the data just does not support that. The data does support that the, chi the child is basically half of the genes of the mother and half of the genes of the father. As that child gets older, if especially if the father is or, or the mother is being badmouthed by the other parent, that, that that child begins to look in the mirror and see the the propensities, the, the, the body language, the eyes, the uh, the nose of the other parent that's being badmouthed and begins to fear that it is that unreliable person, that liar, that drinker um, that the other parent is. And so the, the child, in order to know itself, needs to know it's it's um, it, both of its parents. Otherwise, it grows up feeling very insecure about that half of itself, um, that it's not around um, much of the time. And so the uh, unfortunately, the uh, if 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 there is going to be a movement focusing on men's issues, it probably needs to focus more first on the importance of men being equally understood for the value they bring to the family table than any other single um, portion of the men's men's issue. Oh yeah, I um I can certainly my uh, my mom with my brother. My brother looks very much like my father and my parents divorced when I was an infant. And yeah, my mom went, would say to my brother, oh, you're just like your father. And, you know, I think unconsciously my brother would look over at the smoking crater where my dad used to be and say, ooh, that's not good. And and she would, uh, she I reminded her of her father and who she really liked. And so there is a, a lot of imbalance that can come out of that that kind of parenting. And it is a, a, it is a very 
deceptively dangerous but easy to do kind of self indulgence to end up bad mouthing someone uh, who've uh, who's exited the family scenario. But yeah, the, the impact it has on the kids is uh, is intense. Yes, I say it's the it is the most insidious form of child abuse. Right. Okay. So I guess the last thing I'd like to mention is um, what do you think of the declining birth rates? Uh, particularly in Europe, it's increasing in the U.S. In Canada, I think we're definitely below replenishment. Um, uh, what do you think is is behind is behind that? Well, the more uh, selfish we become, <laughs> the more the, the fewer children we want. Um, you know, children, as you know, are a huge. You know, th there's three basic stages of human life. Um, it's you know, the first is what I would call the I stage. The second, the we stage, and the third, the other stage. And um, the I stage is, of course, when we're totally focused on ourselves. And the we stage is when we get married. And now it's about we and how do we create partnership. And once you have children, it's about other. And, you know, when I used to remember receiving, um, you know, Christmas and Hanukkah cards and, you know, from from all my friends, uh, you know, when I was younger, they were all single and they'd say, I did this and I did that. I'm, I'm going here. I'm going there. I'm, do you know. I became, uh, I, you know, I, I got this grade, that grade, I, this major, that major, and it was all I, I, I. And then they got married, and it was much more my husband and I, my wife and I. And then I, and then they had children. It was like I was sending my child to the Waldorf school, a Montessori school, a, a private school. This, do you know? You know, it, it's all about the children. And so the, but the more we tend to, but our parents. When they grew up, they tended not to think about rights. They t tended to think about obligations and responsibilities. And then um, and then when they, they brought us up, our generation, they tended to focus on, my goodness, I want my, I, w you know, my, I want things to be better for my children than they were for us. And they put a huge amount of attention and focus on us. And so we became real, much more self-centered. And so when it came to us having children, we got us, we intuitively sensed that, um, you know, that, that a lot of children meant a lot of time and we wanted careers, we wanted to travel, we wanted freedom and we wanted to have fewer children because it was a lot of time, a lot of effort. And so we had the option to do that. And the, you know, the wealthier that people become as a rule, the fewer children they tend to have um, and the more they want to pursue their own options. And so um, I think that's a, a huge factor in the, in the game. And we see this all over the, you know, industrialized world compared to, um, to the less industrialized world, uh, portions of the world. Yeah, and I think this hearkening back to the issue with the Catholicism and, and uh, sexual paranoia and so on, I think that it's been hard for people to have a lot of fun raising their kids for a variety of reasons. Obviously, throughout history, uh, kids were, you know, if they were so inherently wonderful to have, you wouldn't need to restrict sex to marriage and you wouldn't need to have all of this propaganda about kids. But I'm sure as you're aware... Uh, there's uh, numerous scholars using a wide variety of data sets from Europe and America have found that on, on, on aggregate, uh, parents report statistically significantly lower levels of happiness, of life satisfaction, marital satisfaction, and mental well-being. And this occurs even after the kids leave home. And so I think that what's happened as well, a lot of people, uh, parenting has always been challenging. I think it can be a wonderful thing if you have the right support structures, but those tend to have sort of faded away to some degree. But I think what happens is, and this was certainly my perspective before I met my wife, and look at my friends who had kids, and it's like, whoa, you know, you kind of get up, at, you know, get to get up two hours earlier. You 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 have no money, and you're always shuttling things around, and and then you got to go to work, and you're tired, and you don't even really get that much quality time. And so I think, particularly with both parents working, it's really hard to make a case for the 
a hedonistic approach to parenting. You know, if you have those kids, it's going to be just fantastic. It just seems to laden people down. And these statistics support that certainly in the modern age, having kids uh, is is overall uh, declines people's satisfaction and happiness, mental well-being. And, you know, I think that that would be a problem we'd really want to address as a society. But we just seem to sort of keep blind, blindfolded and staggering on through the storms. Absolutely. The single most important thing that we can do in Canadian, U.S. and other school systems around the world, um, if we want to have um, a, a much happier outcome for raising children, is to start training um, our children in kindergarten, first grade, early years to know how to communicate effectively. And the key issue of communication is the ability to handle personal criticism from a loved one without becoming defensive. Uh, the Achilles heel of all human beings, male and female, is our, is our um, inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive, uh, especially from somebody we love. We go into, uh, historically speaking, when we heard criticism, we felt it was the enemy, um, and therefore we be built up our defenses or tried to kill the enemy before the enemy killed us. That was great for survival. It's terrible for intimacy. And so rather than making laws as to have, you know, pe keep people married longer or make marriage um, tougher to get into or tougher to get out of. Laws are not the answer. The answer is in helping ourselves know how to communicate in a way uh, that will serve us in any type of relationship we have, um, mother, father, gay, straight, um, or um, working relationship, or um, Israeli and Arab. Um, nobody listens effectively to anyone when they're when people are disagreeing with them. And until that skill set um, comes down, when men and women are parents and in marriage, and there's the pressure of the children, um, that's going to decrease the intimacy of a marriage, as opposed to increase the intimacy, which children can do, but they can only do it when the communication is good. Yeah, so, so communication from a loved one, criticism from a loved one is always an opportunity. Uh, it's either an opportunity for you to accept criticism that is valid or to find out why criticism is invalid. It's always an opportunity for intimacy. We view it as a challenge, as a win-lose, but if you start looking at criticism as a win-win, uh, it can be a wonderful opportunity for self-knowledge. I mean, the myth of, uh, you know, the, I think men have this to some degree as well. Like women have the myth of physical perfection and men have the myth of status perfection and to learn to surrender to the authority of somebody who knows you really well and to, good heavens, I mean, imagine going through life without a mirror. I mean, you wouldn't even know if you, you know, had crumbs stuck to your face or whatever, how your hair was looking. But uh, to have somebody around who's your emotional mirror is such a, an incredible opportunity for a well-rounded view of yourself, somebody that you love and you trust, who can see so much more than you can see from the outside. I mean, lots of, obviously, you can experience a lot more from the inside, but the view from the outside to give yourself a rounded and rational perspective of yourself is so essential. And that is going to come with criticisms and to take it personally and to get defensive is almost a sure recipe for cracking the relationship perhaps permanently so yeah i really really encourage people uh, if people around you are criticizing you in a truly negative and destructive way then you can try and reform that uh, but uh, if you have people around you who you love and trust and hopefully that's your marriage and the the, the parent of your your children uh, really really i would encourage people to look up on criticism as an incredible opportunity and where there's no criticism there is only stagnation. I mean, criticism is an, an essential part 
of, of growth. I mean, we're all going through new things in life. We're all experiencing new things in life, and we're all trying new things, hopefully. And whenever we try new things, we get some things right and some things wrong. And so the criticism is the best way to hone. And if you ain't being criticized, you ain't in love. And if you ain't being criticized, you ain't doing anything new. Uh, so I really wanted to, I think, reinforce what you're saying and, and hopefully encourage people to view criticism as uh, uh, as uh, an incredible opportunity to to get to get close to people and get the kind of feedback that we need to have a balanced view of ourselves. Very good. The um, all right. So uh, no, no. Please, please finish. I, I don't want to go over your time, but uh, uh, if you uh, want to take another minute to finish up, I'm. I'm we yes. don't have an end date, so <laughs> please go ahead. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, there's one key mantra to him. I mean, I think the most important work I hope that I do is in couples communication. And it's just we don't have enough time here to to develop this. But the the most important single thing that one can I could leave somebody with is to as you um, you that you really have to train yourself to do a workaround to your natural biological propensities to be defensive when you're criticized that's 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 what's in our in our biological system and the best quick step toward that workaround um, is by basically before you you know before you you need to set aside a time during the week where you share problems that are challenging for you but before you listen to what is a challenge to your partner uh, one needs to alter your psychological state and altering your psychological state starts with seven different mindsets that that I discussed but let me just leave you with one of those mindsets the first mindset is an inner dialogue with yourself that would be called the love guarantee and the love guarantee is saying to yourself if I provide a safe environment for my partner to share what's really going on with her or him, um, my partner will feel more loved by me. And therefore, anyone who feels more loved by somebody and a safe environment for sharing what they really are feeling is going to feel more love for me. So what's about to come is something that I might traditionally hear as criticism but what is about to come at me is an opportunity to be loved more deeply by my partner and to, to give the person I love more than anybody in my life an opportunity to feel safe. That is a gift that will always bring me more love. So when you focus on the opportunity for love coming forth with every word that is being said, that is the most important single step that one can take toward communication that tends to make people feel they have the greatest gift, which is a partner that provides a safe environment for them saying anything that is on their mind. I think that's uh, that's great advice. And the uh, other thing I would toss in is that I think we often make the error, which is perfectly natural. We're given this idea that we have an identity, that we are one thing, one person, one soul, one one personality. And um, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Schwartz, uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's been on this show. He runs Internal Family Systems Therapy, which a lot of my listeners have pursued with great, great effect. And I did a lot of that kind of work when I was in therapy, that we are not a single person. We are not a single identity. And so to be criticized is not to be criticized as a unit. You know, like if, if you're looking at a painting and you say, I don't like the painting, that's the painting as a whole. Right, But if you just look and you say, I think that this one little fingernail is not painted well on the hand, that's actually praise for the rest of the painting. 
Because when you mm-hmm. focus on one little thing to criticize, you're actually praising everything else that you're not focusing on. And so uh, if we accept that we are not... That I call it the Miko system. Like the identity is an ecosystem. It's it's who we are innately. It's who we have been impacted by people in our life, both positively and negative. It's cultural influences, religious influences, educational influences, authority influences. Some of those things are positive, and some of those things are negative. And things so so bad habits that I have. I have some of them are just bad habits that I've developed, but some of them are things that were imprinted upon me when I was a young as a kid uh, by you know negative experience as a kid. And, and I didn't like them as a kid. And so if somebody criticizes and says, you shouldn't do those things that you didn't like as a kid, they're actually helping me. They're getting me in touch with my sort of earlier experiences. They're helping me to discard that which I didn't like as a child as well. And they're not criticizing me. They're criticizing somebody's impact upon me, which remains unconscious to me. And I think that's really, really important to not assume that we are being criticized as a whole. We are being criticized for our individual components, which come and go, which, you know, rise and fall. Uh, and if we, if we remember to piece ourselves out as a composite rather than think ourselves as a single unit, then we can be criticized without taking it as a criticism of the whole, because I think it's hard to make the case that there is a whole when it comes to personality, but rather something specific, maybe being criticized, which you yourself would have criticized someone for as well. And that's an opportunity to to deal with that a particular aspect, or uh, I guess, as Damas would say, an alter ego, a particular aspect of ourselves, rather than the whole being the whole identity. I hope that's not too abstract, but I think that uh, is, is one of the ways that I found it to be helpful. I, I think that's really brilliant and and important, and I th- think also your analogy to, to the mirror that we all need mirrors in our lives uh, is is very helpful too, uh, Stefan. Fantastic. Okay, well, I will. Um, uh, though I could keep going and going, and uh, maybe we can do another show about the couples communication because uh, I, I think that's that's essential in an area where. Uh, I think uh, abstract thinkers don't spend enough time. You know, I'm still waiting to find the long lost book on Nietzsche's Guide to Personal Relationships. But uh, uh, so, uh, <laughs> listen, uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, thank you so much for taking your time. Let me just uh, make sure I plug your website, Dr. Warren Farrell, two R's. Uh, I guess in both the first and the last name, Dr. Uh, sorry, WarrenFarrell.com, the author of Why Men Earn More, which you should definitely take to your next uh, performance review, uh, Father and Child Reunion, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Are the Way They Are, Does Feminism Discriminate Against Men, and Dear Lord, a huge amount of media appearances, plus one now, I guess, uh, since this morning. So, uh, gosh, thanks again, uh, Warren. I really, really appreciate your time and attention. Uh, the listener uh, feedback has said that this show has flown by uh, even more uh, than usual. So I think that's a, an ex- extreme positive. So thank you again so, so much. You are a real gift um, to the the listener world, uh, Stefan. I just always enjoy, um, often when I listen to my answers, I'm either pleased or not pleased with them. But with you, I find myself really being um, fascinated by each of the things that you contribute as well. So it's really a, a total pleasure for me. Well, thank you very much. Um, just uh, a few items of business. So we have, uh, I will be guest hosting the radio show Free Talk Live tomorrow night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I think that's mostly going to be listener calls. And uh, so you can get that at uh, Free Talk. Just do a Google for Free Talk Live. We have a special announcement next week. Oh, it's going to be very, very cool. The documentary is coming along beautifully. The first uh, 11 minutes are out, and um, we've uh, recorded with live musicians the musical score. Ah, it's too cool. And you will be blown away when you find out who's in charge of the music. I'm not going to talk about it yet, but it would be quite astounding. So thank you, everyone, so much for your support for all of that. Uh, It really is not possible without the support of you, dare I say, the genius listenership. And remember, I mean, you guys drive the quality of the show. It's the quality of your questions, the quality of your feedback that drives the quality of the show. Freddie Mercury, my favorite singer, once said that he can only sing as well as the audience wants him to. 
And uh, I really think that that's very true. So, you know, any praise you hear for the show, if you've participated or supported it in any way, please take that, a goodly portion of that for yourself, because uh, this can't be any better than the questions and the participation that we receive. So thanks again, James. Thanks again, Dr. Farrell. And have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. Uh, We will talk to you soon.